Shut up and sit down. Not one fucking thing. It is another. I, I'm all. I dialed in with 30 seconds to spare, so I'm a little crazy right now. Fucking stuff isn't okay. Okay, okay. We're gonna talk about bad writing advice tonight, and um, uh, see what we can what we can do and um jesus i am just like completely uh i'm sorry i'm completely off my game right now give me a second i'm just i'm all fucked up and okay i won't tell you something that makes me feel like an idiot but i'm going to tell you guys anyway because so i got that new headset right and i've been fussing with it for two days trying to you know i, I got it on wednesday and i've been fussing with it ever since you know trying to get it comfortable and um trying to um you know, test it and everything. And about an hour ago, I realized I had been wearing it backwards. Because I never actually checked the left and the right. Remember how I said it was really uncomfortable because the mic was too far down, it was too low? That's because I was trying to stretch it behind the damn headset. I was going the... Because now, now, the damn mic is right comfortable where it should be. Even the cord isn't a problem right now. I'm <laughs> just, just a thing. It's just a thing. So you know, a lot of people. I've had people comment to me in the past um, that I'm kind of um, <laughs> difficult to be around because I have my shit together, and um, and. It can be kind of intimidating. So I just want you guys to know that I don't, in fact, have my shit together. I'm a hot mess about 95% of the time, and this is a perfect example of that. And also, I'm burning up. Gosh. <laughs> yeah, I just stay in my house. And that 2% of the time that I'm actually on point is when I leave. <laughs> This craziness, just craziness. This is this is me. This is me. <sighs> okay. My dinner was a St. Patrick's Day cupcake. <laughs> I'm so jealous. I had General Tso's chicken with white rice instead of the fried rice I really wanted, um, and an egg roll, and my mouth was on fire. And I'm not even mad. I ordered it medium, even though I prefer it hot. But hot food doesn't always, uh, you know, like me back. We'll see how especially it goes. not since you had a little a little thing removed. Right, the gallbladder. Yeah, you get your gallbladder taken out, it changes your whole diet, whether you want it to yeah, or it not. Does. Because sometimes you stop enjoying the taste of stuff. Am I talking too loud? No. Okay. Because, you know, I got these two headsets, I got these two earmuffs on. It's like, I don't know, it's really weird. It's like talking in a box. 
um, my sister did report last thing. night that she could she she could really hear me through the door, like I was yelling on the podcast. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> I it, it is an issue because you can't hear yourself, so you're kind of like, do I have to talk louder? <laughs> So yeah. Anyway, I had um um I had a uh, had Chinese food for dinner, but I, I kind of resent your cupcake because I would love a cupcake right now. It would be great. I took That's two Nexium. All I had for dinner. <laughs> I had a little. I have a little bit of a sugar buzz going on. I had two Nexium <laughs> as a chaser. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm not sure one's going to be enough. Yeah. <laughs> So I have a fan, like, practically right in my face, so if anybody's getting wind noise, it probably is me. Just let me know, and I'll turn it off. There's a little background mechanical thing. Very background. Like, white noise background. Um, Since I'm sweating, I'll I'll let it lie for right now, but if it gets to sounding like, you know, like wind whistling, I'll I'll turn it off. Cupcakes, cupcakes. Uh. Okay, the the worst writing advice I ever got and the worst writing advice I ever gave because I have given tons of bad writing advice over my years. Let me tell you, the the bet the worst it, that I've received and given, write what you know. It is the was single your, worst that was both. Was that the given or no or given? Oh, so you repeated it. Okay. Not only did I give it, but I parroted it back to people. And here's the thing about that piece of advice. It's not complete. Because it really should be learn everything you can, then write what you know. Mm. Because if you only write what you know and you never learn anything, you never have new experiences, you're 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 Toolkit as a writer is really small. Yeah. And yeah, I, and, you, and, and and you'd be very derivative of yourself, of myself. How? Yeah, <laughs> which is you know fun, but also you know. But really, I I think as a writer, um, you have a duty to your to your craft personally, not to anybody else, but to yourself as. Um, in, in your craft is to get out um, things, learn things, know things, um, listen, pay attention, look, find your inspiration, um, both big and small, out in the world. Uh, and so that's the single worst piece of advice I ever received and ever parroted back to somebody else. Write what you know, because it's incomplete. I think that we tend to um, pass on pithy wisdom. And I think when it comes to writing, pithy isn't always going to cut it, you know? Yeah. It's, It's cute, but it's not helpful. Yeah. Now, Soba asked a question um, on my Ask Me Anything page. Is that how you say your name? Because that's how I've been saying it for, like, ever. Because you know I'm your fan, right? I told you before. Um, and that's how I say your I name. Pronounce, I'm I, saying it wrong. I, pr- I pronounce all the letters. <laughs> I pronounce so all do the letters. I could be wrong. Soba is so how, how you I've it. been pronouncing it. 
So Aubin? So Aubin? That's how I've been doing it, but we need to hear she's, she's there. So she's going she's gonna to tell us if it's all the letters or just if, if the A is silent. <laughs> At some point. <laughs> we'll get an answer yeah, on that. She's just in the qu- chat room. We'll get the answer. Okay, her question was, is I'm currently working on a BDSM AU. Oh, so you were right of The Hobbit, and I finished all my world building, but I ran into a snag. I have three vastly plot ideas that will work in the universe, and I'm inspired by all three. Basically, my question is, is it okay for a writer to recycle their own world building and write multiple stories, or should I pick one and then move on to a different idea altogether? The characters and events in each one will be extremely diverse. But another writer told me that writing more than one type of an AU, of this AU in a single fandom, was lazy. I really didn't agree, but I wanted to get your opinion on it. I have two opinions on it. One, that's your shit. Go eat a Tide Pod. <laughs> yeah, go eat a Tide Pod, other writer. Now, I'm, I'm not going to pick on the other writer because that's her opinion and she's entitled to it. The opinions are like assholes. Everybody's got one, um, including me. That's your shit. So, if you want to write 10 AUs in the world you built, you go right ahead and do it. And give anybody who has a problem with it a finger. And there's absolutely nothing lazy about writing 100K of thick. Also, I would have to challenge this person a little bit on on that advice and why I would consider that bad advice is there is nothing people love so much in the world as stories set in the same universe, even if they're disconnected plot wise. Um, (laughs) I mean, think about it. People love a series. People love being able to learn a universe and get more and more and more and more of it. And I mean, Soeba. Soeba. That's fun. Soeba. I like that. Soeba. Like, uh, Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I just did a little a little shimmy when you said that. <laughs> right. Right. So now, from now on, as long as you live, and this is terrible in my brain, I'm going to associate you with um, that little mouse character from Looney Tunes. Ah, yes, yes. Um Speedy Gonzalez, is that Speedy. who you're talking about? Speedy. Speedy Gonzalez, yeah. yes. Speedy. <laughs> Done deal, sorry. <laughs> My brain's weird. <laughs> but if you can pull off setting multiple stories in the same universe, um, that, I I think that you're, I mean, in some ways, especially if you're writing original fiction and people like your universe, keep putting things in the same universe because people like understanding the environment. Um People like knowing Pern and getting another Pern story, even if it's with different characters. People like knowing the world. Here's the interesting thing about that thing about it being lazy, is that she's essentially saying that fan fiction is lazy. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, at its core, it's lazy, is what she's saying. Because fan fiction itself is often told repeatedly in the same verse. We've all told stories in the Harry Potter verse. I've told multiple stories in the Harry Potter verse. Even when it's AU, I'm still using the foundation of Harry Potter. So basically, the the 
the the meat of that uh, that particular response is that all fan fiction is lazy. But you can write fan fiction of your own shit if you want to, because that belongs to you. And you have more right to write fan fiction about it than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Just saying. I mean, you have you wrong, created a universe. It's basically this thing, sort of disconnected stories with the same world building. You're a Sentinel universe. And it's grand. It's grand because Sentinel universes can vary subtle, subtly. Um, even even your Sentinel universes, they vary subtly, uh, sometimes even majorly from verse to verse. I do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the changes are minor, sometimes they're major. Um, but it's really nice when there's a bunch of stories in one universe. Um, I understand the world building. It's really it's sweet from a reader perspective. It's 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 really sweet. So, um, I I just I I would some things. I mean, most of the time, something that is going to be. Um, Something that's going to engage your readers in a way that makes them want the next story and the next story and the next story, telling you not to do that would be something that I think would be bad advice. I don't think any publisher would give you that advice. <laughs> no, no, I can't imagine it because that that's how you build a reader base. But what I would also say is that uh, Lantian Legacy is an AU of what might have been. Straight down the line. All the potential in Lantean Legacy exists in what might have been. So, underneath it, the world building is the same. Because the characters are the same. With the exception of Taylor. I had to retool Taylor to put her in um, back in Pegasus for Lantean Legacy. But... All the characters you meet in what might have been eventually will appear in Lantean Legacy in, in, in one fashion or another. It is basic. Lantean Legacy is basically a fan fiction of my own fan fiction. Down the line. All the way to Sebastian. And, what, and that's probably and, and a spoiler. <laughs> but. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes I, I have that with. Sometimes we have that with our work, where I mean, you've, you've mentioned the whole thing about them being related, having the same, them being a one of the, one's an AU of the other. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's some things you haven't like revealed before, but the um, sometimes you're writing your own story, and you go, what if, what if, what if, what if of your own work? That's you know, I did that with Catalyst and. Um, uh, 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 that I'll forgive. I mean, the um, for you verse. Um, those those one was the what if of the other. So and it there's I have three stories that are um, have the same exact backstory: Catalyst, De Novo, and um, um, and and for you is uh, they all have the same backstory. Um, De Novo and Memories were, I couldn't make up my mind about which direction to go with the what if. And they were split apart of each other. So some ideas derive out of another. What if this had gone this way instead of that way? It's a sort of a sliding doors thing. Um, and the sliding doors is kind of doing an AU of your own story. 
those of you who don't know what sliding doors means, there's a movie. It's got Gwyneth Paltrow in it. So you have to forgive that part if you don't like her. Um, <laughs> um, and she um, basically in the story, she there are two moments. Um, um, there's a moment. Um, and in one instance, she misses the train. And in the other train, it's the train, right? And in the other instance, she yeah. gets on the train. And you see, the audience sees what happens when she gets on the chain, train and when she misses the train. And it is um, stunning how that one little moment can change her whole life. And you don't really know which one is real to the very end. And I have to admit to being, um, at first I was disappointed by which one was real. And then I was really fucking relieved. <laughs> <laughs> I was utterly relieved. I was like, oh, thank God, fuck. <laughs> but sliding doors is like that because it's, um, it teaches you a great deal about storytelling. So I really recommend that you watch it. It used to be on Netflix. I'm not sure if it still is. Um, if it's not on Netflix, I think it's worth buying, really, um, just for the craft point of view. Some things are such interesting concepts that, um, it's worth, and they they become um, like a trope, or they become part of a writer's lingo. Um, and I would say that you know a lot of a lot of writers I've talked to, we can talk. You know, when we say sliding doors, we know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, it's become right. kind of writer lingo as as, as that as a type. It, it's both a trope, but it, aside from the trope thing, is that you're not necessarily going to write a sliding doors thing. Um, but if you au your own idea, that kind of is a sliding door. It's like what was the de- point of departure? Where did the where did the universes diverge, and what was the critical moment? And actually, and when it comes to, and in a way, when you're dealing with fan fiction, you are doing um, you're doing what is my point of departure? You're doing a sliding doors in a way with canon, because you have to figure out where your point of departure was, and what that event was that changed, and then how the change ripples out from that. Unless you're doing a complete alternate reality. Like, you know, where they're the crew of the USS Enterprise, um, you know, the Harry Potter people are the crew of the USS Enterprise. I think Hermione's the captain. She's, she's going to be Captain Kirk in that one. Um, anyway, um, total tangent brain. That was total brain weasel there. Uh, you, okay. Sliding Doors is fiction not on Netflix, but it is currently on Hulu. But again, really, it's just something I think as a writer you should um, definitely pick up. Yeah, and, but when you're when you're writing fanfic, and if you're not doing this, you need to. I would actually say that 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 would be a piece of writing advice there that I would give to people is you need to understand what your point of departure was, um, and why it was that point, and what the consequences are, and what made it that point. You know, so if you have a canon event, um, and like let's say Tony reacts differently to the canon event than he did in canon. Well, why? Why did he react differently? What was it about that day? Even if you don't reveal it, you need to understand it. Because there has to be kind of an impetus for change. And you don't necessarily have to write it. You don't have to necessarily explain it. But you need to know it. That was probably, I know we're we're talking about worse, but that was probably some of the best writing advice I ever got, is that you have to know it all. You have to know it. You don't have to you have to explain it, but you have to know it. You can't be ignorant yeah, of your you own to, story. And you have to know your characters from the bones down, bones up, all the way down. 
from the stardust they're made of, you need to know what, um, where they come from, what they think, what they feel. Even if you never reveal it, you need to know it. Mm-hmm. Especially because when it comes if you to don't know characters. It, yeah, if you don't know, how can you speak with? How can you? How if somebody ever asked you why does this character do that, or why are they this way, or why did they behave out of character? Seemingly, you should be the authority. You should be able to answer the question. And so that was something that was told me once, is you need to know. It can't be a mystery to you. <laughs> Actually, I think it might have been said in that snotty tone, but I translated it in my head a different way, was it can't be a mystery to you, I think is what she said. <laughs> it really can't. It really frustrates me when I see that shit. Oh, well, I don't know what my characters are going to do. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> I just can't stand it. I can't stand it. I can't. So, so non-canon fans just asked, does that include secondary characters that more your main characters? Actually, one of the worst pieces of writing advice I ever received is that you have to have a detailed pro- character profile for every single character who in your in your story. Every single one. Which is bullshit. And I completely disagree. I completely disagree with that piece of bad advice. Because sometimes yeah, that guy advice- is pouring a drink. Yeah, right. Sometimes they're just taking your order, pouring your drink. Sometimes they get mad at you, and you don't need to know why they got mad. You know, um, you know, if you if you if you've got a character, if you've got a, like a throwaway character, you know, um, in, in a game that they call that non-playing character, who basically is there as a plot device. Maybe you've worked out enough to know that you know. The waitress got a flat tire on the way to work. She she was late. Uh, her boss was angry at her she's having a bad day and so therefore she's pissier with the main character than, than needs to be and that made that that is enough motivation right that is enough background for a character who lives in that one scene and it served for one one function in the plot but i was basically told if any character interacts that with, with the with the with the plot that you have to have a detailed character um bio of them uh new yeah. I so what do you do with bad writing advice? Anytime you get advice on your craft, um, but basically anytime you get any kind of advice from anything or any source or any subject, look at it from all the angles, decide if it has meaning for you, and if it doesn't resonate with you, put it aside. Unless it's advice from your lawyer. <laughs> you should listen to your lawyer, especially if you're in an interview room. Listen to your lawyer, and remember you have the right to remain silent. Utilize it. Because I often have the right to remain silent, but I have the inability to do so. <laughs> <laughs> What's that line? I have the right to remain silent. I lack the capacity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which reminds me of that story that Ron White tells about being thrown out of a bar in New York City. <sighs> if you've never listened to it, you can go on YouTube and um, pull it up. It's hilarious. Um, my favorite line of that few- is, I didn't know how many people it would take to kick my ass, but I knew how many they were going to use. <laughs> Uh, 
There was a piece of writing advice you gave once that I had to reprocess into different advice. It wasn't that it was bad okay. advice, but I had to I it it I tried it and I flopped with it. And and it, I think it was a case of you didn't mean it the way I took it. And Kira okay. knows I'm painfully literal and I am uh she is painfully I am, literal. I am. And and the tireder I am, the more literal I am. So you don't like want to be interacting with me um, like late at night when I haven't had any sleep for like a couple of days and like use a a, a metaphor. (laughs) It's just bad juju. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. um, So Kira Kira once said, what is a piece of writing advice? And she said, start in the middle. And I pondered start in the middle for a while. And I went out with my next story, and I started in the middle. And I was like, whoa, that just went really badly. Because <laughs> now I had to do not. a whole bunch of exposition. And I started it. I was too literal about what she meant by start in the middle. Um, so, like, I would start like, <laughs> it literally in the middle of an action scene. Like, start in the middle. Um, and That's so the way I... <laughs> <laughs> I knew it wasn't later. I'm not, later, I figured out wasn't what you meant. But at the time, I was taking it very literally. Start in the middle. So I, um, the way I reprocessed it was, I think there's something I, I, I sort of get that I took it wrong, and so because I'm literal, sometimes I have to rephrase things so that they are not something I am um, fighting. Because if I kept telling myself you know, start in the middle, but it doesn't really mean the actual middle, then I'm kind of like, you know, correcting my own brain constantly. So I rephrase it to myself as started a moment of change. Um, but yeah, and I, and that yeah. was, a, that, that was one of, that was a rough trade. We had done kind of a craft show prior to rough trade and you'd given that advice. And I remember reading a bunch of first, um, first, first, first posts from people. They were a lot like mine. Yeah, you know, it's like right in the middle of an action scene or something like that. My favorite no one was the one that started with a bang. A literal one. <laughs> <laughs> Someone started mid-sex scene. I was like, yes! Get some! <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> that, now, that kind of start in the middle. As long as you don't... I do have a pet peeve about missing the penetration, though. I mean, it's like, you can, you start in the middle, but not... not <laughs> I need to see some. <laughs> I need to see the eggplant get the donut. Okay, so. <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, let me ask if I if thought it was an interesting writing exercise. Did I get anything from? It? Oh yeah, of course. Um, cause I, there's I told somebody I told somebody recently that there's no wasted writing, in my opinion. Um, even if you don't use it, even if you throw it away, even if you're frustrated by it, no writing is ever wasted. I know some people completely would disagree with me, but that's my view on it, is that um, everything I do is something I've learned from. And um, I didn't do well when I took that advice so literally, but I was able to reframe it in a way that really does work for me, which has started a moment of change, because sometimes there's an inclination to start too far back um, in, in the narrative, too far back of the back, too far into the backstory. And I ask myself, okay, well, what is the moment of change that is working towards my plot? And it isn't this thing that happened when this guy was a kid. So, uh, so yeah, it, it was, it was a very worthwhile 
writing exercise to, to go through and have something that didn't quite work for me um, and figure out how to make it work. Because I knew it wasn't wrong. I, I didn't, it didn't resonate as bad advice. I just didn't take it in a way that was constructive for my process. So um, I think my best example of starting um, in the middle, um, there are probably two. Uh, that would be Lantian Legacy. And the unspeakable plot. The unspeakable plot. Because in Lantean Legacy, um, you find out how fucked they are after they bring home a ZPM. They're all waiting in the... And you don't know why they're all in the gate room waiting to see this thing. You don't You don't realize in that moment that they have that John and Rodney have brought home the Holy Grail basically and that, that that's in this in, and this is the reason they're going to survive because without it they were all going to die. And so I thought long and hard about how to open it and there was a, an early on idea that I'd written down but never put in the computer where um I started it with them trading for the ZPM, and I thought, no, that doesn't have the impact that I need. And then um, I started with the meeting of them leaving um, leaving Atlantis to find to search out this this ZPM they've heard about, but they don't know if it's actually there or not. And that didn't feel real either. But when I came across the scene where Rodney is bringing it home, and Elizabeth can't help but touch it just touch this this tangible thing that's going to make sure she doesn't die. And she's touching it, and McKay's patting her, <laughs> you know? And I was like, okay, yeah, that's my moment. And that's when I started in the middle. And that's what I mean by that. Um, not so much an action scene or a sex scene. Well, that was really fun, though, I have to admit. The sex scene was fun. Um, but to start in the emotional meat of your story, start in the middle of that. And with the unsequel plot, it was the head of the ICW or whatever, whatever it's called, um, asking the members, do we tell the world that magic is dying? And then you learn the background of, of how they got there later on um, through dialogue and through memories and through, you know, just through, um, the events that take place after that moment. And that's my middle, start in the middle. And that's what I meant. <laughs> I didn't mean it quite so literally. <laughs> but some people take advice very literally. It's, it's, it's not just Jilly, you know. Some people are just built that way. Yeah, some people have a hard time, which is why some people, I think some writers, when they take writing classes in college, they they automatically kind of figure out how to adapt what a teacher's telling them to work for them. And so people get very stuck in the process that the teacher gives them, even though maybe it never worked for them. And, um, you know, if you're someone who, who takes things really literally or you try to, I, I, I'm pretty good about, you know, trying something and then going, okay, that didn't work. But some people do get very, get very trapped in what they learned and they have a hard time unlearning it. Uh, and actually, I have a, one of my cousins is a physics teacher, and he, he said one of the hardest struggles he has is helping people unlearn things because some people don't unlearn things very well. Um, Makes so sense. If, if, you know, if, if you're somebody, if you get writing advice, it's, it's important to be aware of how you are. 
uh, because I do tend to be literal. If someone's giving me advice that kind of makes me head tilt, uh, you know, depending upon who, who it is. But for the most part, you know, I, I now know that I need to go, okay, when do you say this? Do you mean it as, as, as it sounds, you know, that I should, like, start right in the middle of, like, an action sequence, like there's bodies falling and, you know, blood's all over the hero? Is that what you mean? Or, you know, well, you know ask, I, I know to ask the question now. But did my other explanation make more sense to those of you who didn't quite get it when I was talking about how I opened Lantian Legacy? Because I hope so. Finding that moment that's going to draw your reader in immediately. Suck them right in. And so I hope I succeeded in those two particular scenes that I pointed out. Yeah, you did. I mean, I think that depending upon the story about what's going on in your story... um, a lot, like a lot of people, um, like when they write Sentinel Guide stories, they start at the moment that one or the other or both of them comes online. Um, so people start back of that, but it's very common that the, because a moment of pivotal change is because, you know, if one person's online and the other person isn't, that's not going to draw them together. So the second person in that chain coming online um, at a minimum, is a pivotal moment that sets the dominoes falling to bring your couple together. Uh, so there's, very, there's various ways of approaching that. They come online together, you dress the first person coming online and the second person coming online. But the moment that I see a lot of Sentinel Guide stories start at the moment that the second of the pairing um, comes online. And that, to me, that makes a lot of sense because that is a critically pivotal moment to move in your plot is what enables the dominoes to fall because you can't get them together conceivably until that happens. So um, I've done it both ways. Um, In 10 years after the war, Hermione comes online and that's the moment in Mm -hmm. uh, duality. Harry has, it it opens in um, St. Mungo's where Harry learns he's being dosed and he doesn't know why. And um, but in the awakening, I opened it with both Blair and Jim online. But Blair kind of locked down until he just kind of has an emotional burst that gets Jim's attention. And one thing that and I Jim got was kind of hiding, on, yeah, in, in, in comments um, that I, that did not get approved was that I opened a Sentinel story with Blair. Wah. Wah. I focused too much on Blair, but a lot of people had problems with the way um, I wrote Blair in that anyway. So um, it's, it's, it's hard to take any of that seriously as a result. Yeah. Blech. I think the story I got closest to starting really in the middle of the, it, it was, um, I think it sounds pretty much starts in the middle in the sense that the actions that have um, set the dominoes falling have already occurred when the story opens. Um, 
And it's actually a scene with two characters who don't really appear in the – well, Fornell does. But the guy who discovers the, discovers the thing goes to Fornell and goes, we've got a problem. But the thing that led to that, the actions, which most of them were canon, that led to that event um, had all already occurred by the time the story started. And then it starts going back later and figuring out how they got to that point. And um, – Um, oh wait before some smart ass comes and emails me and tells me that I actually started the awakening with with a scene with Jim yes that's true but the first section of the awakening wasn't about Jim Blair was the focus right and the fact that Jim went to Blair made Blair the focus um and a lot of people think, in old school fans in the fandom of the Sentinel think that Jim should be the focus and that Blair should come running after him at every opportunity. Like a pet. And that's what I mean. And that's what I meant. Not literally that the first line was from Blair, because it's not. And I don't want to get no damn emails. <laughs> people correcting you about your own shit. Right? <laughs> I know what I wrote. I don't need your assistance. Because if you were to tell, like, if I were to tell If Found in a very linear way, and I, I'm not saying that I told that that was a nonlinear narrative, because it was not. Okay. But if I told it in a very linear way, the sequence of events that led to um, Tony finding out that he wasn't really Tony Denoso, he was Alex Shepard. If I told that, I would have to start when he was a baby. That would be when he's the first stolen. thing in the chain. Huh? Right, when he's kidnapped. When he's that's stolen. The first domino. Yeah. yeah. That's the first domino in the chain. That would be the very linear approach. So, um, and you, you read stories that, that are written that way where they start, you know, in infancy. You see the progression of events. You see how he became Tony Dinozo. You see, you know, go, you would see go through the case. And I'm not saying that's, I'm not trying to say that's wrong. Uh, but it's it's a choice that you make. Do you because all of those details have to come out, right? They have to come out why he was taken, who took him. But it doesn't necessarily have to come out before that pivotal moment where it's that it's revealed who he really is. So um, it's you know, and it's it, and I don't you know some people tell that stuff in a nonlinear narrative, which is where they would go back and forth in time. I, I I have a real personal pet peeve about nonlinear narratives. I, I can't they drive me up the wall. So I would just have it something that comes up in conversation or during the course of an investigation. Okay. Well as we were investigating, this is what we found. Um or, you know, you get details from somebody who knows, but I wouldn't actually do flashbacks and stuff because that's just my not my writing style. Um but if there, you have more than two flashbacks in your story, um you've picked the wrong point to start your story or you don't need the flashbacks. I, 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 I just, I, I, if I get more, if I, I'll give you two, but if I hit a third flashback, I'm going to close your story. Cause it I, feels like I you're read not... something. I read something once. Yeah. I mean, it's like the writer's style with the dirty flashbacks because I read this story that there was like one sentence of a character getting in a car, and then it said flashback, and everything was in, tal- in italics. And the flashback oh, was to the scene that happened 
to the scene that happened right before he got in the car. I blame CSI I like, for that shit. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, really? You're doing a flashback to 10 minutes ago? I do blame CSI. They had all those episodes. I, so, I, I, so I closed something. Because it was like, you know, Bob got in the car, turned the key into the ignition, and thought about the meeting he had just left. Flashback, italics, Bob walked into the conference room and saw his manager and his vice president sitting across the conference table. And I went, nope. (laughs) You can't have a flashback about 10 minutes ago. It doesn't work. There's my advice, and it might be bad advice, but there you go. That's what it is. As a reader, I cannot stand a nonlinear um, uh, narrative to the point that I was unable to watch um, How to Get Away with Murder, which pissed me off because I was looking forward to it. But it's told in a nonlinear fashion, and I can't stand it. It pisses me off so badly. And so does that Quantico. Their first couple episodes were that way. I'm not sure if they're all that way, but I wasn't able to watch it because of that. It pissed me off so bad. I just can't handle it. Um, the time, the time. So I was gonna give an example of when I can do a nonlinear, kind of a nonlinear thing, sort of. You remember the show Cold Case? Yes, that's different. Um, yeah, where you would see there'd be like one. There's like two time streams. There's the events that took place in the past and the events that took place in the future. And as they're discovering the events in the past, you're seeing them as scenes. Okay, that's kind of a nonlinear narrative, and that. There are people, I have read the occasional story, and, you know, has to be very highly recommended, where there is, like, a historical story that's floating underneath the main story, and it goes back and forth, but each timeline itself is linear. That, that, that makes sense. case doesn't bother me, because it's not like I'm seeing the same characters in two different timelines. You know what I mean? I mean, it is because... You're you're seeing a younger version of people who are suspects and the victim and all that, but it's not mm-hmm. the same as being told a story. The only nonlinear narrative I've ever been able to sit through, as far as a movie is concerned, is Pulp Fiction, and I had to watch it twice to get everything. Twice? You did way better than I did with that. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate I that. Well, I guess... I- I, was, I watched it in the theaters, and then I watched it at least twice at home to try to catch everything. And because, and I didn't want to see it again in the theaters because I had some stuff I needed to forward through. Because there's some stuff I would never right. watch again. But um, right? right, yeah, yeah, I'm never watching yeah. that again. Nope, not happening. And if you don't know, and if you've not seen um, Pulp Fiction, I'm not going to discuss it on this podcast. But there is a very um, If you have triggers and you've not seen um, Pulp Fiction, you need to get with somebody who has seen it before you watch it. Yeah, because anybody who's seen it will be able to tell you what what what's in it and what to avoid. But honestly, if you have triggers towards any kind of violence, whether it be gun, physical, or sex violence, don't watch Pulp Fiction. Really don't. Or make sure you're in a really it's good a, place when you watch it. It's a good movie, but it's not worth the trauma. Oh, I don't believe in hurting myself to enter 
contain myself. Yeah. My husband told me I could watch the second season of Jessica. Uh, what's it? Jessica Jones. He said I shouldn't watch the first season. And those of you who've watched Jessica Jones probably know why. It's full of consent issues and um, all that stuff. He says that I could probably watch the second season. I'm like, I can't watch the second season without having watched the first. What's wrong with you? If I watched the second season, I'd end up watching the first. He has no idea how OCD works. No, he Obviously, really doesn't. I'm not supposed to be watching it. I was sitting here twitching. <laughs> I was like, what does he mean you can watch the second season and not the first? I don't understand. I have a hard time watching a movie sequel without watching the first movie. I'm like, I missed one of the middles in the Fast and the Furious series. And it's really bothering me to the point where I'm probably going to have to buy I think it's the it's the one Tokyo the Tokyo Drift. I skipped that because it didn't have Vin Diesel in it. But now I'm like I, I fucking need to watch it. <laughs> I fuck up this stupid. I'm probably not. Sort of, I'm probably not. But it was sort of, it was not the best movie in the franchise. But yet I'm gonna end up watching it. Yeah, you are. I don't think that the time traveler's wife is um, nonlinear. Bilbo himself is kind of nonlinear, but it's told in a very linear fashion. I don't remember it being frustrating or irritating. There's a story in the Hobbit fandom that's um, Bilbo and Thorin, and Bilbo is the time traveler, and he travels throughout Thorin's life. From infancy, he's there when Thorin is born. And he moves throughout Thorin's life. And Thorin just pushes through the timeline as he should, and Bilbo appears whenever he wants to. Not when he wants to, but when the the magic that makes him time travel makes him. This feeling that Thorin is helplessly in love but also that he deeply resents the circumstances. And it's beautiful. And it's um, of an arcane binding, yes. It's beautiful. But Bilbo has a very nonlinear life <laughs> in, that, in that story. Yeah. It's um, not, you know, I see flashbacks are sort of, I think, people's way of trying to not be nonlinear, but it just, it, it kind of, what happens um, the thing I really kind of drives me crazy with nonlinear is where you're seeing a scene, like you start the story and then all of a sudden you jump to the past for a, for the scene that explains why the person is that way. You know, it's somehow contextual. So they're not really doing a flashback, except it sort of is a flashback, but it's not told in the form of a flashback. I don't know. It's just, it just all, if it, it all just drives me batshit insane. They're basically doing a nonlinear narrative to avoid putting a bunch of stuff in italics, but you don't need to put stuff in italics for a flashback anyway. But that's a whole different... Um, if you know how to do it. 
Right. There, there are ways of putting. Actually, people in people who don't know what they're do, not, don't know they're doing it put flashbacks into their stories all the time, um, but they're done in a very natural way in the narrative that it is not. Um, you're not, you know, putting little asterisks as a scene break and putting things in italics and labeling it flashback. You know. Um, <laughs> But when you have a character who gets up, you know, they walk outside on the porch and they sit down and they take a deep breath. It's like, you know, Tony took a deep breath and caught the scent of, you know, cherry blossoms on the wind and remembered his mother um, taking him to school. Uh, the scent reminded him of her and of her perfume. and da-da. That's effectively a flashback. And if, especially if you slip into past perfect tense, you are doing a flashback, but you're doing it in a way that, you know, the tenses were created to do that kind of thing, referring to events in the past before the current timeline, the time stream. So there are, you know, people kind of instinctively put little mini flashbacks in their stories all the time, but they're done in a natural way in the narrative using the tenses so that everything flows and that you're not calling out something. Here's a flashback. So um, flashbacks were um, in like a... PTSD Give them an thing. example of past perfect. Past perfect is if you're if you're writing in past tense, um, past perfect is when you tack on like the had. So he had he had once, you know, grabbed a, you know he he had once. Um, I'll think about this thing. So I'm trying to think of something I wrote in past perfect recently. Um, actually, okay, everything, everything, almost everything until the end of the story of that story I wrote. Um, this week, the short story I put co- up called Adap- Adapt, Adapt- what do you call it, Adaptive or Adaptation? Adaptable. Adaptive. Adaptable, yes. Adaptable. Think, sometimes my working titles get really stuck in my head, and then the real titles don't gel. Adaptable is told entirely in past perfect until the end. Because the last scene is the current timeline, which is when it switches into past tense. And because John, the first sentence is past tense, um, and then John starts relaying his narrative about all the events that had led up to certain people coming to his doorstep, straining his ability to be adaptable. So the entire story is told in past perfect until you get to that last scene. The first sentence and the last scene are in past tense, and everything else is past perfect which is why there's all this he had. He had gone to the station and talked to Derek. You know, he had gone out into the forest and babysat Styles while he talked to a dragon. That is all past perfect. It's referring to the events, events that are occurring before the current timeline. And most people know how to do it instinctually because they've read it. They've read it in a lot of stories where people switch into past perfect to explain an event that occurred before that moment in the story, and then they naturally switch out of it to get back into the current time stream. And that is basically, when you do that, you're basically giving many flashbacks. Now, I gave 6,000 words of flashback, but, you know, whatever. You won't quibble. But it wasn't it, it wasn't um, 6,000 words of italics uh, where you're being force-fed a flashback. No. And that's the problem when you have to when you're force feeding a flashback to your your writer it's it to your reader it's not natural and it and it really it's jarring um 
and difficult. I kind of want to be a tree, too, to be honest. If you've not read Adaptable, <laughs> you should go read it, because I want to be a tree when I grow old and die. You know, you can be a tree, actually. You can you can um, have your... Um, you can. Your, your body um, and your ashes put into the root ball of a tree, and you can be a tree. It's totally possible. Now, I will say that um, past perfect, by its nature, is telling, not showing. Because you are relaying events that have happened before where you are. And you really can't, yeah. it's the nature of the narrative, that you cannot show things that happened before where you are in the timeline, which is why some people in, kind of want to do a flashback rather than flip into past perfect for a longer scene because it allows them to not to, to actually show the events rather than tell. I mean, from a craft perspective, um, 95% of your story being a tell is probably not a really great idea, but the, it's, the point of the story didn't really have anything to do with the show versus the tell. It was kind of just, it was more of John's state of mind and kind of you know and it was crack what the fuck I, I don't have to follow the rules when I'm writing crack <laughs> I think that that kind of writing style is uniquely suitable in a short story format I think if you'd have tried to voice off 100k on me written like that I might have called your house <laughs> I'm like dude <laughs> Is there a problem? Do you need to talk about? Do you need some therapy? We'll get you a therapist. <laughs> Do you need a writing group? <laughs> what are you doing? But, why are but, why are you why are you why are you telling so much? Right, because a hundred k that would be oh my god, where's the fucking dialogue? But in a short story, it's not. It fits. There are certain kinds of narratives you can do in a short story format that you should never, ever, ever in a million years try to do in um, a novel format. Whoa, no, no, no. No, no. No, what? What's wrong with you? We did that. Shame on you. No, I don't want to ignore that. I want to delete it. (laughs) Get rid of that. Okay. I can't look at that. Okay. You there. did the Jeopardy song. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> well, I was in Jeopardy. I've been bit. I've been bit by one of those. <laughs> so, um. Earlier up in the chat room, Dark was talking about um, her process and um, how the podcast had taught her to um, kind of safeguard her process from the intrusion of others. And I think that's one of the best pieces of writing writing advice I ever got from a a teacher um, in school when I was writing and I was still... um, kind of babysitting my own process. I really didn't have a process down and I was trying to... um, follow this this writing book I'd gotten where it told me how to structure um, my research and my outline 
and I was really frustrated because it wasn't meshing with with how I taught myself. It it, it wasn't meshing with my process, and I felt like I wasn't I was um, failing at being a professional because <laughs> I wasn't able to do what this writer in this this craft book wanted me to do. And so I went to my teacher, and I was talking to her, and I was like, maybe I'm just maybe this just isn't what I'm supposed to do. Maybe I'm just not good at it. Maybe, and she's like, no, that's not it. She says you can't put yourself in somebody else's box like that you need to make your own you need to um take the parts of her process that work for you and make them your own and discard the rest and you have to build your own process because no one person can put a process out there that everybody can use you have to do your own thing and that's really the best thing that i ever could have been told and i was like okay okay I can work with that because I was losing my mind trying to make myself fit in this woman's process and it was just not working. Because I think that when we um, we talk about bad advice, because you started at the beginning with like saying that you know it's not really bad advice because that might work for her. Um, it's probably the best advice is to just accept that not everything is going to work for everybody. I mean, we're all different fundamentally. We all process right different. As close as we might get, some people are super close in their process. It's like, you know, very tiny incremental differences in in, in the way they actually work. Uh, The the work part of it, not just because every just, you know, obviously no two people have the same brain, but the work and prepping part for two people might be almost identical. It's still going to be different. It just is. It's like fingerprints. Everybody's process is different. And so not every piece of advice will fit for every writer. It's like telling people not to use adverbs, you know. There are a lot of people who live and die by that advice because, you know, a couple of really prominent writers said it and a bunch of really, you know, a bunch of publishing houses repeated it and a bunch of um, um, tools that grade your writing, grade you on your adverb usage. So, you know, we get get kind of pummeled with don't use adverbs, but that might be bad advice for you. Might be good advice. I love adverbs. I do too. I was also. I was also but, told very and very early in my young life to not use a semicolon. Well, I fucking love a semicolon. So, oh, semicolons are a delight. Um, it's, one of my, it's my favorite piece of punctuation. Um, the thing about adverbs, though, is that adverbs can be very impactful. But when they are, there is, it's, this is again, this is again that pithy advice. People like to distill writing advice down to something pithy, and the pithy advice is don't use adverbs. Well especially L-Y, adverbs that end in L-Y, um, when they're overused, they lose their impact. If, every, if everything a person does is slightly, she's slightly moved, she's slightly twitched, she's slightly this, she's slightly glanced aside, it starts to become ridiculous, right? So an, over, an overuse of adverbs can drown out the impact of the adverb when you use them. So there is something to the advice. There's something there to consider, but because they've made it this pithy thing, don't use adverbs, um, people just write it off instead of hearing what's there. Is overuse of L-Y adverbs 
because it, well, there was a big problem in books for a while with saturation, basically superlatives. Um, and you, they lose their impact. It starts to just become white noise. It's sort, of like, it's sort of like weasel words, right? They talk about weasel words. It's sort of like words have become so overused that they cease to mean anything. Uh, so, but people tell you don't use this word, but really it's don't, not don't use that word. It's figure out how to use that word well. But that's not pithy. <laughs> Just like write what you know. Right. It's that write what you know is pithy. Don't use L Y adverbs. These things are all don't you know, but these things are these are pithy little pieces. They're little they're little gems people can remember and pass on to other people. Um, the thing is there's probably a germ of truth in that, but you have to figure out what that germ of truth is for you. Which is why, you know, one of the first things Kira said is ruminate on it. You know, as Kira said, when you get bad advice, she didn't say just sort it right out. She said think about it, ruminate it, see if it fits you, and then if it doesn't get rid of it. Or get rid of the part that doesn't um, work. You don't have to keep the whole. You I can would, figure out where is the what is the gem what is the kernel of truth in the pithy advice. And there is a usually a, a there's something there. There's there's usually something there that that will work for you um, that will make sense to you even if you don't like it. Really, truly, and honestly, yes. <laughs> oh my what's it's um I I think that one of the worst things I've seen recently as far as writing advice goes is ha- is seeing someone say that writing in first person is what was the word she used? She said, well, I don't remember the exact word, but she said it was indicative of an immature writer. Right. Oh, yes, that it was immature. And I have to say that writing first person well is the domain of someone who's superior in their craft. Because I agree. We can all do it, but we can't all do it well. Anyone who's ever written an essay can write in first person. It, we don't. It doesn't all come out well, though. First person is a very intimate um, and rewarding point of view, but it can also be really um, shallow if the writer is unprepared to dig into her narrative, his or her narrative. Um, I could offer up some seriously, seriously terrible efforts that have been published professionally on this issue, but I won't. (laughs) But I will tell you, if you want to see somebody, if you want to get, if you want somebody to give you a master class on writing in first person, you need to read, you need to read Elizabeth Peters. Because that woman could throw down. That is a master class in first person writing right there. Uh, just off the hook. 
Anytime There'll come a point when you're reading that person. when you won't even recognize the first, you won't even recognize the POV. You'll be so deep That's in it, it you won't even care that it's being written in first person. It happens to be on occasion that I'm reading something and I don't notice that it's in first person, and that tells me they've done it really well, really well. One of the things authors I think who are writing in first person, there's this gimmicky thing that people can get into, where you're. Tr- almost trying to infuse too much of the character voice into the first person. And when that happens, you, it almost always comes off as talking to the audience, which takes you to second person. And I think a lot of first person t- to me reads as second person in disguise. You're calling it first person. But you're really – because anytime a character says, am I right, in their narrative, who are they talking to? The so reader. When that comes, yeah, the reader. Anytime you you end a sentence with, you know, you know what I mean, who is the character talking to? And there's kind of this, you know, trying to infuse the character voice in, except when you do that, when you put in all those little questions and those little pithy kind of snarky statements from the character, it starts to become an issue of feeling like the reader is being talked to, even though the author, it may not be the author's intent. And if you say, hey, do you realize you're talking to the reader? They're like, no, I'm not. I'm in first person. This is yeah. a second person story. I'm like, yeah, but you, but your story's coming across as across the second person. So that is when the first person narrative is really notice, noticeable. And that's actually a second person narrative, but it's really noticeable when it's too much I, when it's too much, too much trying to, you know, I this, I that, da 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 da. And as opposed to telling the story from that character's point of view, and. When the, when the story is being told well from a first-person point of view, the point of view is almost invisible. It's just so intimate that you are just in it. And it's one of the reasons why, even if it's really done well, I have a hard time with first-person present tense, is because if, if per, first-person present tense is done really well, I'm too in it. It's like, urgent. It makes, it makes me nervous. Well, um, yes. The only thing worse than second-person to me is second-person present tense. It's appalling. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. I've read some. I, I actually have read some first person enough first person present tense that I um that was done well to know why I don't like it, and it's because I get too I get stressed. I get really stressed it's very out. Stressful. <laughs> right. I it find is, present it's tense stressful anyway, but first person. <laughs> I'll be holding the back of my I, head. <laughs> Third person at least gives you some distance from the narrative enough that you can deal with it, the immediacy. But first person present tense, there's no distance. And it's it's like, ah. Oh. I will not read character slash reader. No, absolutely not. No. That's a creepy level of real person fic that I will not be involved in. <laughs> yeah, no. They are weirdly close to RPF, and it's just bad. It's just bad. I mean, all RPF is bad, but that's just super bad. Um, so one of the things I learned early on in in fandom, actually, is that individuals can give good advice. They can give bad advice. They can give good advice. Um, they can give advice that maybe doesn't completely work for you, but you parse it. But individuals, you know, people you meet in fandom. Fandom develops 
ideas. It develops a consensus about some things, and those things become like rules, and people will shove fandom consensus at you as writing advice. That's like the worst. That, that to me is the worst advice I've ever been given. Anything that's a fandom consensus, if fandom has come to some kind of weird agreement about craft, it's usually bad. I'm actually having a hard time thinking of a good. I'm actually having a very hard time thinking of an example of where a fandom consensus about craft I thought was good. Because um, that's where the thing I like can't think no of female OCs. You know, no female OCs came out of a fandom consensus um, that you can't have Mary Sue's fandom consensus because you absolutely can. There's a fuck ton of Mary Sue's in fan fiction. Um, but there's the a thing fuck is, ton of Mary male. Sue's in original fiction. That's right. But the thing is, they're male, and when they're male, we get away with the idealized character, but when they're female, we get trashed for it. So, but this kind of fan fiction agreement, fan fiction reality, like this is the rule, this is the way you do it, um, that tends to, I, I have not run across a, a fan, fan fiction agreed upon rule yet that I um, agreed with that I thought was good advice. At least I can't think of one. But we look forward to all the emails you're going to send us letting us know what you think are good ones. And if you missed the sarcasm on that, you might want to get your sarcasm filter checked. <laughs> Just saying. There's a line I wrote in um, Child of Magic in a scene that you guys have not seen yet. Maybe you've seen it. I don't know. I'm not sure what I posted at Child of Magic. Anyway, the kids are in a field and they're and they're, and they're looking for an adder stone. And um, Blaze, uh, Hermione, uh, standing around in a circle, having found their stone, but they don't know how to get it out of the ground. And Hermione's like, "Well," because <laughs> you know she's impatient, right? And Blaze says, "It's really fortunate you're pretty because you're so bossy." And Daphne Greengrass says that it's really obscene that. Hermione gets criticized for the same characteristics that Draco represents, and he's called a leader, and she's called a know-it-all. When in reality, Draco and Hermione are two sides of the same coin. They're both bossy little know-it-alls, but Draco is considered a leader in his house in Slytherin, and Hermione's a know-it-all because she's a girl. Right. Good for Daphne. Yeah, I know, right? I was, I was really proud of that moment. <laughs> because it, it, but it, that's happened to me all my life. You know, I'm a bitch and a man's leader. So it's okay to have a Marty stew, but it's inappropriate to have a Mary stew because how dare a woman be awesome and badass and kick everybody's butt and be, be on top? How dare, how dare that bitch do that? Yeah. And the thing well, is, is it's also women do it too. Yeah, women women do it almost more than men do it, because these We've been rules taught for fandom were primarily crafted by women. Okay, so and the thing is, is people do. I will say, people conflate Mary Sue and self insert. A lot of self inserts are Mary Sues, but not all Mary Sues are self inserts. Mary Sue is an idealized character. A self insert is the author in the story. Um, authors who put themselves in the story tend to idealize themselves, so they tend to be Mary Sue's. But it isn't the same concept, okay? But um, I did kind of get into it with somebody one day about 
the definition of Mary Sue, which is that basically this other person's point was is that um, a canon character by definition, I mean, cannot be a Mary Sue, and that Mary Sues are original characters Hello? that are included. But can you hear me? I yeah yeah I was like expressing my shock. Yeah, so that's what they said. And so I said, okay, well, so even if you buy into that definition, that it's literally not a Mary Sue, the definition of a Mary Sue is an idealized character. And people Mary Sue, they idealize, can, if we'll use it as a verb instead of a type of character, they Mary Sue canon characters all the time. We, we seem to be okay with it when people do it to Harry Potter, but we're not okay with it when it's an original female character. And we seem to be okay with it when they do it with a male original character, but not a female original character. So, and you know, and also part of the problem with it was is because I I don't like reading an acknowledged self insert. I am not interested in reading the author and the story because to me it breaks the suspension of disbelief. It breaks the fourth wall. The author's in the story. Okay, so if the Mary Sue or not Mary Sue, if the self insert is acknowledged, this is me in the story. I have a hard time reading that. And it's not that you can't do it. It's just I have a hard time reading it because my suspension of disbelief is shattered. Um, but the issue was is people tended to jump on authors about Mary Sue's idealized female characters as being self-inserts. And it became, that's why they became conflated. And because people didn't like self-inserts, all Mary Sue's got, um, you know, they got tarred and feathered. So, you can do whatever you want. Fandom's consensus about both Mary Sue's and self-inserts, in my opinion, were bad advice. What readers like or don't like is a matter of individual reader preference. You can do what you want. If you can ideally don't like it, they can kiss your ass. That's right. People bitch about idealized characters all the time. If you make Harry super Harry, people will bitch. Somebody's going to bitch about it. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> People told me I idealized Tony too much. And I was like, really? We don't give a well, fuck. Whatever. <laughs> whatever. No, we don't. We don't. Um, I, don't. I don't actually, I don't actually um, make a living in fandom, contrary to popular belief. <laughs> I am never getting over that comment in that group. It wasn't even to me. It wasn't. But someone said that yeah. readers are a fan fiction writer's livelihood. And I'm like, what? No, that's not how that fucking works. That's not how any of this works. I, I yeah, have never done yeah, the word so fast in my life. There's some asshole listening to this podcast is going to tell her I said that. I'm going to get an ugly email. Uh, Dark says, how can you idealize a unicorn? I don't know, gold body paint or something? Right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> He's already a fucking unicorn. <laughs> I agree. Superman you know, is a Mary Sue. Mary Sue's in original work. Sam Carter is a Mary Sue. Jennifer Keller is a Mary Sue. Bella Swan is a Mary Sue. So please don't tell me that our original characters can't be Mary Sue because that's ridiculous. Right. But the thing about that, that actually speaks, to me, that speaks to a different issue, which is that 
when we give our female characters flaws, people start hating on them. We can make male characters flawed, which makes them three-dimensional. Jack has an inappropriate sense of humor. He doesn't acknowledge the chain of command very well. All of those things make him a great character. If Sam had done those things, she would have been reviled. So they have to make Sam practically perfect in every way, which makes her a Mary Sue you know, so we idea the female characters get idealized because fans. This is a fan. This is a fan thing, folks. Fans don't deal well with female characters who are flawed. Ziva, <sighs> did you have to use that example? Well, it's true. Well, she is, but she, it, yeah, yeah, but she's also she's a deeply criminal. flawed. She's deeply yeah, flawed, she's, and that's how they made her flawed. It, oh no, Bella Swan is definitely a, a, she's a Mary, Mary Sue. Sue, and that's why she's um, annoying as fuck. Frankly, that's why she is because annoying as fuck. <laughs> Taylor, Taylor is um, she is perfect. She, I, I. I kind of idealize Taylor in my mind, but I don't actually see her as practically perfect. She, um, she was, she was. I think she had flaws. She did things. She, um, she did things. I think in canon that Mary Sue would not, but she did them in such a way that it made her better for it. You know, like did you when ever get her- the impression? That originally Taylor might have been written as a man. Maybe. I remember. I remember wondering at one point if, like, Ronan was the um, that they moved whatever character Ronan was going to be out later. See, there were there were things that Taylor did because it was something she believed in deeply, in in, in that that were completely illogical. Um, I don't even remember the context, but she was supposed to. Um, they had some ritual they needed to perform. It was actually dangerous that they weren't leaving, but she insisted that they stay and finish. And it was like you kind of wanted to strangle her in that moment in that episode. Like your 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 ritual can can wait. It can. Why are you doing this? But it was something that was really important to her, and that she felt like she couldn't bend on, and. Um, and she, yeah, the ring ceremony, and she, she stuck to her guns, and and I had this moment of like, oh my god, that is not important, but it didn't affect. It actually made me like her more. So I felt like, in some ways, even though I do consider, I, in my mind, I really I idealized Taylor. I don't feel like um, the show idealized her some, but they still let her have moments where she really got on my nerves, and yet it didn't. It didn't bother me because there were times Rodney got on my nerves and I liked him more for it. And then when, when Taylor got on my nerves, I liked her more for it. So I felt like they hit a good balance with her or at least more of a balance than they do with most female characters. Cause they, they don't tried to do idealize, well. They, yeah. They tried to idealize Weir and that shit backfired. It backfired in an like, epic whoa. way. Taylor does have a lot more patience than a normal human being because I'd have bitch slapped about half those people. 
<laughs> it wouldn't have taken much. Nope. Yeah. She is. I. She. She is supremely patient. She definitely is. Um. I think the mark of a good character, actually good character development, is when the characters do bug you sometimes. Like, what are you doing, you know? Um, because people, that's human. People bug us. The people we like the best in the world bug us sometimes. That's just, that's just life. People who are sort of plastic and perfect all the time, they start to annoy me because they're plastic and perfect all the time. I agree that Weir was flawed from the outset, but that's not the way they were portraying her. We interpreted it that way. But they kind of wrote her as almost a princess. At least that's the way I saw the writing. Um, Yeah, she was definitely Disney um, um, princess-isk going in. Lady Holder just said there's no Santa Claus, practically. Let's not repeat that on the podcast. She's ugly. <laughs> it, would, it would traumatize people. What are you doing? Um, but, you know, pretty much, I started to think a lot of times, a lot of times the advice, you know, we all recognize, all of us, sometimes we have a hard time recognizing. Um, there's some bad advice we have a really hard time recognizing as bad advice for us. But there's other there's other bad advice that we that we um we we know kind of instinctively we just to just throw out we just immediately we don't even have to ponder it for very long it just goes one ear and right at the other and right straight in the circular file like there has to be a bottom in the relationship okay granted I know some people operate like that but I would say most of the horde is more enlightened um you know that, that there has to be one of the people has to be quote the girl in the relationship I've heard those actual words used. No, if you're writing Flash, no, that is not the truth. Um, that reminds me of that say, reviewer on Amazon who got mad because um, I didn't have a heteronormative hero rescue moment. Right, that Riley didn't need to be rescued. Um, I'm just means that they've cast they've cast Riley as the girl. Riley as the girl, mind, which is really insulting. Not because girls aren't great, but because why did there need to be, A, why is a girl need to be rescued? B, why was Riley the girl? Um, I mean, there's just so much wrong well, conceptually. Well, you know why Riley with, was the girl in her mind, because he was taking it in the ass. I desperately wish I'd written it in the opposite direction. Well, but I figured it At least needed one. some time. It just needed some time and another scene before that problem was solved. It will be solved. I'm going to write a little mating short story. Well, Riley's going to own that ass. Because... There you go. Just, just, just for you, reader who thinks there needs to be someone on the bottom. But some of these things resonate. So some things, it's not like um, some things resonate. We hear some things and they resonate in our being, and we go, "Yes, that is me," and we take them on board. And some things you hear and you kind of head tilt and you go. I don't know. I have to ponder that. And you have to pick out the part that applies to you. And some things we have such a negative, visceral reaction to that we never do anything with them but throw them away. And so everyone has had that experience. I think every writer has had that experience where they get advice that like their gut just clenches and they go, no. (laughs) And you just push it away as hard as you can. You go, that is not for me. 
it's sort of like telling a plotter, I mean, a pantser, that you can't begin your story until you have written a, a, a storyboard, until you've done a scene map on a storyboard. To, a, a pantser would, would, would just like, be like, and they would push that idea away physically. Are you kidding me? Because it's not for them. Um, I actually would push that idea away too. Actually, I've been given that advice that you're not ready to start your novel until you have a scene map and a storyboard. And I'm oh, a fuck plotter. That shit. And I was like, fuck. I was like, fuck you very much. I rarely ever do a scene map, um, and sometimes if after I've plotted, I'll um, when I'm writing, I might stop to do a scene map if I have something specific I want to happen in that scene, or if I want something. Um, if I want to alter the tone or the mood and to make sure I get it to hit those spots just the way I want to, I'll do a scene map. But it's not something I do often in the prep stage because there is such a thing as over-prepping for me. And often mm-hmm. scene mapping is that over-prep. Yeah, I agree. That's, what the, that's, that's the point that I get to when I've told myself the story so in-depth that I've lost interest in telling anybody else's story. Yeah. It is extra. A scene map is extra. Um, let me see if I can find you guys an example online. Here, I found a link for you guys. It actually, you have to ignore the narrative, just scroll down and look. Um, if I put t- if I put a link straight in, oh, it does make it a link. Okay. Yeah, I was looking at the same image. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I've had so a pantser got that. If a pantser got that advice, they would be like. Oh, I'm never writing again. If they believed it, if if someone authoritative that they trusted told them that, they would never write again. It'd be like instantly crushing a writer. Um, but even as a plotter, I just go, "Are you are you fucking out of your mind?" Because if I did that, scene maps is that level where I know the story too well, and I am not interested in it anymore. And one story I did I did do a scene map. Um, the last time I ever did a scene map, um, I didn't even get all the way through it. I got about, mm, I started mapping the scenes for about a third. It was, it was, it would have been an epic, epic novel. It would have been probably, my estimate was about 600,000 words to tell the whole story. I got about a third of the way through the scene mapping and I was like, I am so done with this. I don't even care about the story anymore. <laughs> I was so fatigued. It can happen. Whenever I, like, there have been scenes that I've I've stopped to scene map when I'm actually writing, when I want to do a little bit more forethought before I get to the, you know. But that's different than doing all that scene mapping in advance because basically, um, well, I do consider my plot document basically my first draft. It's it's not on that level. It But, but if it works for you, then you, you keep doing you. You do you because mm-hmm. um, that's the point that we talked about earlier is do... that my process is not your process. It's not Julie's process. It's not Lady Holder's process. It's not anybody's process but your own. So, you know, 
we all share the same elements, but we put the elements together differently. If um, that 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 works, that really works for some people. Um, some I, I know I know I've met people who do who do see map. Um, I will say that it's more more relevant to screenwriters than it is to um, to authors. But I do know people who, who authors who scene map, but scene mapping isn't even usually done at the at the at the um, even with the screenplay. It, it's often not done at the point of writing the screenplay. It's done post writing the screenplay when they're getting ready to storyboard the movie. So it's just it, it was a piece of advice that somebody something somebody worked for them really well, and they've taken this thing that worked for them really well and they've turned it into a truism. And there, there are very few actual truisms. I think the only one that I can think of that is actually true, 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 um, is that it's easier to edit. That you can edit a bad page, you can't edit a blank page. And that's a quote from a writer. I don't remember the off the top of my head. Um, and that the point of her, her truism, was that was you should just write something. No, it wasn't Nora. Um, but it was one of the few things that I ever read that I thought, okay, that's that's it, because it's fundamentally true. You know, it, it's not just advice; it is fundamentally true that you, if you don't write anything, you'll never have anything. And so the point was, people talk about, you know, you can edit a bad page, you can't edit a blank page. So if you write something and it's crap, you at least, or in your mind, you at least have something to work with. You can do something with something that's bad. You can't do something with nothing. Sorry, was that a big noise? I accidentally hit my no, mic. No, it, it was a little noise. Jody Peacolt. You can always edit a bad page. You can't edit a blank page. Yeah, I think a lot of people quote her because it resonates as being true. To, to almost you know to most people it's like staring at the blank page and and because I th- I know and I think the point of that is uh, some people are afraid of writing something bad and and to speak to a question um, that is that a question to speak to a question that somebody asked earlier it was do you think anything's a waste and I said that there's no no wasted writing it doesn't matter how good, bad, or indifferent it is. There's nothing wasted. So if you just because you don't like the end result doesn't necessarily mean it was a waste. Because now you know, you know, how not to how not to do how approach that scene. If you didn't like the end result, well now I know that wasn't a, a good plan, a good path to take. But if you don't try, you don't ever know that that was the wrong path or the bad path or a path that didn't work. I think Soeva had a question, but I don't know if she ever answered, asked it. Right, okay. Yeah, I don't think she asked it yet. I scrolled up, I don't see it yet. I'm trying to think of other advice because there's so many times I've been given writing advice where I've just kind of gone. And honestly, 
Um, when it comes to plotting, I, I was told um, I should write gay sex because I'm a woman. Okay, I misinterpreted something she said. She doesn't have a question. Um, okay, see, that's right there. I mean, there's actually a whole thing about that, but that's really super annoying. What about that? One of my readers thought I was a man. I was like, really? Thank you. <laughs> that's really sweet. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, somebody but mentioned earlier that I they, shouldn't they are... write male characters because I'm a woman. I find I mean, that's How just... limiting is that? Yeah, that's like saying that, you know, but see, men have been writing women characters. Um, Badly. That well, it's sometimes good, sometimes bad. Since 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 the beginning of publication, and we we haven't challenged their right to do so. But somebody mentioned earlier they don't know if their method of plotting is is right or not. It may not be right for you yet if you're just trying to figure out plotting. But there are so many ways to plot. The thing about plotting is if you are doing it and it's not working for you, there is another way. I think there's an article written by Chuck Wendig that he 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 gets, like I don't know, like 20 different examples of ways to plot, different approaches to plotting. Um, And depending upon the type of, you know, experience you have and and the way your brain works, like there's one method to plotting that is you basically are writing a giant summary of your story a long narrative explaining your story and a longer story narrative that that summary could take. It could, you know, if you have like a hundred thousand word story that that narrative could be 30 page summary because you're summarizing the entire story, the entire story arc. Like that would never work for me. It does. That doesn't, that's I mean, a I, synopsis, I read, which I hate. Writing it a is, synopsis. It, yeah. So plotting by synopsis. So there are, there's lots of different um, ways to plot. And if, if you've tried a method and you go, I didn't like that, it didn't work, or it's not working for you, or you're fighting your own process, try another way. There are other ways of of plotting that don't have anything to do with um, storyboarding or building scene maps or anything like that. There's a lot of different uh, approaches to, to getting it done. If somebody just builds a high-level outline, that's a plot, if you if you just do a, a a quick summary of goal motivation and conflict and determine where the climax of your story is going to be, um, that's a plot. Because motivation, you've got internal and external motivation, and you could if you can do a, a couple of lines explaining the internal and external motivation, and then the internal and external conflict and the goal of the story and where the climax is going to be, you just plotted something. But if that method of breaking it out doesn't gel in your brain, there are other ways. Some people hold the whole plot in their head. Okay, I I forget shit. Like I, I've had yeah. to solve the same. I've had to solve the same plot problem for my story in April like five times because. I come up with the answer, and I think as soon as I get someplace I can write it down, I need to write that down. And the thing is, the answer comes to me when I'm busy doing something else. It's like I need to not be focused on it. And by the time I get to a place where I can write it down, I've forgotten, and I've solved this problem like five times. 
Um, <laughs> Next so, time, just send me a text, and I'll write it down for you to get in your <laughs> message. Well, if I could, if I could send you a text, I could put it on my phone. But it, it always happens, like when I'm in the shower or going to the bathroom or doing the dishes, I'm like my hands are covered Wait. in soap, and I solve my prop problem. Pause. I need to start like you keeping, go to the bathroom without keeping. your phone. Yeah, I go to the bathroom without my phone. But I'll start I never go to the bathroom without my phone. <laughs> I'll start keeping a notepad in there. I use my Google food. Is it Chuck Wendig? Uh, yes, and Sarah has the article. She has the exact article. Uh, 25 ways to plot. I think that's the article that I was thinking of. That's one of them. Um, there's another one um, that he wrote that is very funny where he talks about up front of the ways to plot. It was a preface to Nano. And he was talking about um, ways to plot and that you should expect that, you know, he, I think he used the line just as no, no battle plan survives engage with the enemy. No, no plot survives the writing process completely intact. Um, so he's kind, of, he's kind of prefacing it with setting you up for things to go awry and how to, how to, how to handle that. Um, I need to organize my writing bookmarks. I've got so many of them now that it's just, it's complete chaos. <laughs> For those of you on the podcast, I have put a link to that 25 ways to plot, plan and prep your story by Chuck Wendig. I think that's how you say it. Description. In the description. I believe Chuck, Chuck does write a lot of different things, but one of the, one of the things I believe he's really well known for is his Star Wars books. I think. Now I feel like I'm being a... Ugh, that's not but, what I wanted to you do. Know, I think it, just some really, really good advice on plotting would be to um, don't torture yourself trying to do somebody else's method. If the method isn't going to work for you, you're going to know pretty much immediately. And there's no need to waste your time. And intellectual masochism is is literally a waste of time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. If you need your ass spanked, let us know. But intellectual masochism is just really, it's a waste of time. <laughs> okay. Sarah, Sarah found, she found both articles. The one I was specifically thinking of is the How to Outline During National Plot Your Novel Month, which is, um, October. That's why he called this because plot your novel is October, um, and that was the article that I found really insightful. Um, the article itself, and then he goes into various types of plotting methods, and um, the method, the pluses and the minuses. And the thing is, some of people, some people have a hybrid method. You don't have to pick one or the other, right? You don't have to go pick a method. You can. Go a little. This works for me in this way, and this works for me this way. I'm going to fuse them. But the idea here, the you know, reason I'm bringing this up is because there's no wrong plotting. And if anybody tells you there's a right way to plot, I will say unequivocally that that is bad advice. Because there is no one way to plot. I do believe that I just have my favorite line of anything ever ever written. Calm what? down and unseal thine buttocks. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, 
I'm a pantser at heart, a plotter by necessity, and I always advocate learning how to plot and plan because inevitably someone on the business side of things is going to poke you with a pointy stick and say, I want this. <laughs> and offer you a check. And I'm going to tell you from experience, it's real hard to turn down a check. I don't like writing on spec. Um, and writing on spec means is that you offer um, an idea and um, without ever writing it, and they offer you money to write it, and then you have to write it, and you have a deadline. Um, sometimes you can write on spec where you do a detailed synopsis. Um, or and But what I learned to do early on in my career was to write. A lot of people don't write unless they're going to sell it, and I can't be that person. I can't be that writer who writes strictly on spec for original works. I write, then I try to sell it. That's just always the way I've been. But then there was a time period where I had to write on spec, and I was offered to um, to write in um, a series of anthologies, and I was giving a specific theme that I had to write in. And I was like, I don't know. But then she's like, okay, but we're going to offer you this amount of money. And I'm like, okay. Because <laughs> it's, it's real hard to turn down a check. <laughs> And then I'm stuck writing four stories and something I've never actually written before, but they sent me a check, <laughs> which I promptly cashed. And once you cash right. your check, that's that's what you do with the check if you cash it. <laughs> you cash that shit, and then I had to write four stories on spec. Not even my spec; it was somebody else's spec. <laughs> that was really difficult. But if you can't write on spec, what I would recommend and what I often do is I'll write what I want to write. Then I'll write a synopsis and send the synopsis in like I'm writing on spec, even though I've already written. And then if it gets sold, I'm like, okay, well, how long do you want me to take to write it? <laughs> like I haven't already written it. And, oh, honey, you can give it to us six, eight months. What are you thinking? I'll, I'll pick a date. And then I'll just meander my way through a second or third draft during that time period and turn it in a month in advance and look like a fucking pro. Ta-da. <laughs> I'm just saying. There you go. Um, for those of you, some people on, I have, Chuck writes a lot of craft articles on his blog. Um, the There's writing challenge stuff on his blog. There's, uh, opinion pieces. There are um, guest re- guest authors, and the day of the week kind of determines what hits his blog. Guest authors who come by and talk about their book or their craft or whatever, and then he has just craft articles about, you know. And I've I've never regretted reading one of his craft articles. I've never felt like it was a waste of time. And I think he's got at least one book on craft. Um, it's called Damn Fine Story: um, Mastering the Tools of a Powerful Narrative. So, um, you know, if if his if his kind of humorous approach to craft advice works for you, I do recommend checking out his blog because um, he's got a lot of interesting um, a lot of interesting perspective, and he's got a very funny way of approaching um, craft and the the complaints that people or the 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 things the issues that writers often have with things. So. Um, He's a good resource. I've been inspired by um, many of his articles many a time, got me through something I needed to get done. So go do that. There's my potentially bad advice for someone who might hate the way he writes. <laughs> like I said, advice can be neutral, right? 
that advice, go check out Chuck, Chuck's blog. If someone really cannot stand the way that he presents information, that was bad advice for them. But for somebody else, it could be really good advice. And yes, because that was funny as hell. Books. Yeah, it was funny as hell. Unseal thine yeah. box. <laughs> I'll put it down. I do like. <laughs> Dark just quoted one of the things he said is the vomit draft. Puke up the story, just yarf it up. <laughs> I can't do that, but I appreciate those who can. I, you do you. I bet he does too. People are such delicate fucking flowers. I just, it's a shame. <laughs> yeah. It's deeply unfortunate. There's really nothing worse than a cat throwing up. I can't think of it. There can't be anything worse. We have that 15, 14 minutes left, and I want to talk about something um, specific. Uh, earlier um, in the month, we had a podcast, and we talked about that. Um, unfortunate issue with the catfishing and um, there was uh, a person who wrote in to one of us um, talking about at questioning whether or not having a use name in fandom or using a pen name instead of your real name to write could be considered catfishing and the answer is no because catfishing is a persona that is designed specifically to um, facilitate an intimate, false, a false intimate relationship with a person for personal gain. It's a scam. It's fraud. And it's not the same as somebody using a non plume in fandom or a pen name in fandom or um, having various pen names as a professional, because I have four. Um, and um, it's just... Catfishing is exploitation, and a pen name is just used for privacy. It, right, exactly, Claire. So, it's just something that came up that I wanted to, just to touch on. I think that sometimes people think that if you alter, if you you know lie about anything but your name, that you are, um, I don't know, that it's that it's it, it takes you away from the just and moves you more towards that catfishing line. Here's what I'll say about that. It's sometimes, particularly if somebody lives in a small town or they work in an, in a, in an industry where you know, their, their life details would be easily recognizable, um, sometimes, I mean, I do this, I shift my details a little bit. You know, like if I mention my sister by name, I'm not going to mention her by her real name. I'm going to come up with a name that I have for her or that's the name that she will be, go by publicly because I, I don't have the right to out my sister to people who don't like what I write. Um, if I had if I had pets, they probably would have different names, you know. Um, I I usually I might I might shift the city that I live in, but you know this is just obscuring to me. There's a difference between obscuring um, the information, you know. If I like, I might say that I was, I don't know born in, in L.A. instead of San Francisco, if I was born in San Francisco, assuming that came up. And I, I, if somebody asked me legitimately in fandom where I was born, I wouldn't answer because since that's identifying information they use to check for identity, that's just a dumb question to ever answer is where you were born in a public fashion. But 
um, uh, catfishing is, if somebody asks again, what is catfishing? Um, just Google catfishing. <laughs> Google it. But it's creating a, a fake persona with the intent to, um, with the intent to con someone, with the attempt to lure them into, um, a, 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 yeah, it's exploitation. It's with the intent of exploitation. Um, to lure someone into a relationship, and it could be a friendship, an exploitative friendship. It's typically romantic, but it could be an exploitative friendship where you're like exploiting them for money or favors or something like that. But anyway, it's an intimate fraud. Um, it is intimate fraud. So me telling you like that I live in Seattle instead of Portland or whatever, that is not me trying to be disingenuous. That is me um, keeping people from being able to find me to keep myself, to protect my privacy. That's just kind of, but I don't like lie about my sexual orientation. I don't lie about, you know, life experience except to obscure facts that would make it recognizable. Easy to find you. Um, yeah. Easy to find, figure out who I am. Um, because obviously protecting my, my real identity, and it's not just to protect me from people online. Um, I have worked in industries where it would be me being out in fandom or be me being known to be an, an adult writer could get me fired from my job. So there are, re, there are a variety of reasons why people don't reveal who they are or how to find them. And the, as long as they are not trying to exploit you or get something out of you, it's nobody's business why they are trying to be private, why they won't tell you um, where they live, why they won't tell you how many siblings they have or, or what their parents' names are, because it's nobody's business. And their reasons for doing that are nobody's business. So um, unless I'm I was reading an article one. Yeah, I was reading an article recently where um, it's come out that young people, like in their – late teens and 20s aren't even exchanging full names like you can date somebody for several months and only know their first name and I'm like huh (laughs) that would have been something that I should have thought of because that would have been handy a couple times I'm just saying stalking has become (laughs) some next level shit right yeah you know with with, with some of the technology people have what, I mean, and the thing is, the people, the people who exposed this catfisher, which they did a great thing, but it is proof they, they, one of the ways they exposed him was, from what all the accounts I've read, was an epic amount of cyber stalking, looking up, doing reverse IP lookups, and um, verifying information, and getting access to public records, and um, is that called it, there doxing? was a time. Well, if they had revealed it, it would be doxing. Um, he kept claiming there was doxing, but there was never any proof that he uh, they actually revealed his information. And then he claimed that the tweets were deleted, except that nothing ever is deleted. So um, people always um, screenshot anything suspicious. Everybody does that. So if they had doxed him publicly on Twitter like he said that they did, somebody would have had a screenshot, and no one has ever produced a screenshot of any actual doxing. So I don't I don't believe his claim. But they did, I do mm-hmm. believe they did find out where he lived. I do believe that they were able to track him down. I do, I mean, I believe a lot of, of basically cyber stalking happened to uncover the catfishing thing. So 
And the point is not that I'm not saying they were right or wrong in doing that. I'm just saying it, it's evidence because there was a time on the internet when you could catfish people and not get caught if you were careful. Um, you still can, but and, you have to be really on top of your game from a cyber's perspective. So a don't and his do catfishing was just, twofold, right? He claimed to have cancer yeah. and took donations, and he also cut um, cultivated personal intimate relationships with young gay men to get fodder for his books. Right. And the thing is his lies his lies got so multi threaded and entrenched and deep that he couldn't even keep track of them, which is how he started getting caught. Is he would say one thing in this interview and then contradict himself in another interview. Um and and then things wouldn't mesh with things he had said back in his fan fiction days and obviously he an alpha reader. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's but, I mean, so ugly. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're, you need you need an alpha reader for your catfishing. But I mean, the thing is, <laughs> I mean, uh, this kind of stuff. People people doing you know exploitative things in fandom has gone on a lot. There are some epic, um, you know, tales in fandom of people who have done some really bizarre stuff, creating false identities with the intent of exploiting people for something, right? Whether it was creating fake scandals um, to give them sympathy. People have manufactured, um, like, hate mail. Um, people have manufactured. Um, there were just, I mean, like, Famler has some really long um, accounts of some really, like, bad people, especially people who would manufacture scandals, Um I don't understand really the, the purpose of it, but it was something that was apparently quite common. So fandom kind of trained, and I imagine since this guy came out of fan fiction, I imagine he trained for how to catfish in fandom. So I, I would I would totally guess that that's where that training came from. But um, privacy um, is not the same. But he also lied about his personal details a lot. Like he at one point he claimed to be gay, then he claimed to be bisexual. He claimed to be a somebody who um, worked with, he hustled for money to what support a heroin habit or something. Um, stuff that was kind of geared to get people to buy his books, this false persona that was going to in, endear himself in some way to someone to get sales. So that's not exactly catfishing, but um, his 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 PR. what is his um his uh, what's his face his uh, his his um agent called it building a brand. It is, his entire persona was fake, and it was his brand, is what she called it, before she stopped defending him, mind you. So, you know, the thing is, the community is very, like, up in arms, especially in the male-male romance community, is very up in arms right now about um, people not using their real names, and, you know, some people act like they have the right to know an author's real details because of this scandal, and, um, and that's going to bleed over into fan fiction a little bit. So, you know, if people, you know, when people, if people put bugs in your ears and say, um, you know, there's, there's, there's litmus tests for catfishing, you know, is this person trying to exploit you? And if the answer is no, if they haven't asked for anything from you, if they're not seeking you out, then you've got no grounds to accuse somebody of catfishing. You know, it, it's an easy test. Is this person catfishing me? Have they asked you for anything? Have they sought you out? Have they gaslighted you, manipulated you? Have they done anything 
that is trying to have they tried to exploit involve you in an intimate relationship? Right. Have Anything. they tried to And if the answer if the answer is no, then they're not catfishing you. Have they claimed to have some terminal disease for six years? That they need That's money ugly. donations for. Because some people there are and the see the sad thing is there are a lot of people who are sick who need um help with just meeting, you know, minimal medical bills, you know, the overwhelming medical bills, like making their minimum payment. Not even paying the bills, but paying their rent. Um, and so this just reflects people are really now like, wow, if anybody asks you for money, are they catfishing me? Well, look at how long you've known them. Do you trust them? I mean, ask yourself some questions before you start accusing. Because this email was a little a, a little bit, it has an edge of accusation to it. Um, and just you know, think 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 that through before because people are do get angry about the idea of being exploited, and rightfully so. But it's pretty easy to tell if you're being exploited. If because if the criteria, if the circumstances don't even exist, you're not being exploited. Begging for reviews is kind of not classy. Uh, blackmailing for reviews is just ugly. But I wouldn't consider it catfishing. <laughs> no. It's just ugly ass, just ugly, ugly ass behavior. We're down to ninety seconds. Uh, wait, I, I, I'll give a caveat to that though, real quick, which is that if someone creates a fake persona and comes into a room and says um, this person is going to get their, you know, their contract canceled with their publisher if they don't get forty reviews on their book in the next twenty four hours, please go help this author out. And it is the author. Yes, you've been catfished. Is that something that would happen? I feel so naive. It has happened. Really? It has happened. Yeah. Authors, authors making um, false IDs to go in and raise attention to their book. That's from, so from ugly. A, from a oh my god. Fan. Oh yeah. Oh. Oh. Okay, we're down to 30 seconds, and on that ugly note, we'll see you later. Say good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone. <laughs>